All right, we're in week four of a four-week series that was born out of a verse I read during my sabbatical that kind of just captured my imagination. And uh, over these weeks, we've shared that verse with you, John 1.14, as, as the disciple, the apostle John, begins his account of Jesus' life and teaching. He describes Jesus in these words. John 1.14, you can throw that up there, Christian. And uh, it says, the word became flesh, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace. Say it with me. And I'm trying to drill that word into your head. You're probably sick of the word and by now, but it's that word that really has captured my imagination that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And so I wanted to explore that as a church. I think that's really significant. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the life of Jesus. What did it look like for him as he navigated situations and relationships to be full of grace and truth? And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked out at truth. What, what is truth and why does truth matter? Last week, what is grace? Why does grace matter so much? And then when I designed this series back in the summer, I thought, okay, this last Sunday, I wanted to take all that we've uh, learned and heard and bring it to a certain area of, of our, our life and our society and our experience. What does it look like to be full of grace and full of truth uh, when we interact with the issue of and people of different sexual orientations and gender identities? Because I just had the sneaking suspicion that maybe this is an area where those of us who follow Jesus and those of us who maybe aren't Christians but wonder what these Christians think and how they act, this might be a particular area of interest where we might wonder, what does it look like to be people who are full of truth and grace on this issue? And um, so, I, so that was my plan. And, um, you know, you, you can't open a newspaper without seeing... A, do people open newspapers anymore? Remember the day? You know, you had coffee, you had a newspaper. Those were good days. Um, you can't open a newspaper, turn on the news, without fairly quickly hearing a story related to these issues, right? Drag queen story hours preferred pronouns in schools, transgendered athletes uh, in sports, instances of homophobia or, or, or discrimination. Um, and so I thought, well, this is a real societal pressing issue in our day. How do we navigate this as Christians? And my suspicion was confirmed because at the beginning of the series, I said, hey, I want you to let me know what are areas um, in your experience of life where you would like a little bit of direction. I, have, I heard from a few of you uh, and every single person, without fail, talked about this issue. So I thought, I think I'm on to something here. Um, one email was like, how, what does it look like to be a welcoming church to people of different uh, gender identities and sexual orientations? What does that actually mean and look like to be a welcoming church? Are we supposed to be a welcoming church? Uh, someone else talked about their own workplace where they have to navigate different relationships and certain standards. What does it look like to be faithful to truth and grace in, in the workplace setting? Some of you, that's a relevant question. A third person recounted how they had had some conversations with, with Christians and they were surprised to hear certain words come out of those Christian mouths. Words, words that um, they hadn't heard from those people before who said that, you know, Jesus is just all about love. Who is it for us to, to say what is right or wrong, what someone should do or not do, 
Jesus was all about love and we just are called to love. And, and so this person said, Rusty, like, what am I supposed to think of that? And so I think this is really relevant. And we also know it's, it's a highly charged issue and it's very personal because there's people in this room, I've had conversations with you recently in your own families, you are navigating this. A grandmother in this church who has a grandchild who now identifies as a different gender. Another uh, individual couple in this church who has uh, uh, a son who uh, is in a relationship, a long-term relationship with another man in a homosexual relationship. And, and so this touches very close to home for some of you. And maybe, maybe you're here this, this morning and you yourself, not just people you know, but this is part of your own experience Okay, in your, in your desires, in your identities, and you're navigating this internally within yourself. And if that's you, I'm just really glad you're here. Um, you are welcome here. Uh, so at the beginning of the week, Tuesday, I knew that this was coming and I thought I shouldn't do this. Rusty, preach on something easier. It's a busy week, all this stuff going on with youth and young adults, ministry and figuring, just kick it down the road. And so I, I wrestled with that on Tuesday, but I, I just came to the resolution, no, let's talk about this, because this is important, because we have to navigate this as individuals and as a church, and because I think Jesus really wants us to think of this very deeply, because I, I've just kind of come to the conviction, and you can throw this point up there, Christian, that disciples don't run from the mess. They don't run from messy people. They don't run from messy situations, right? Because Jesus didn't run from the mess. Jesus came into the mess. He didn't have to. He could have stayed up there on the throne, all the glory. He came and took on flesh, and He entered a messy world. And so His people do not shy away from or run away from the mess in the world, they don't run from the tension. You know, I think the world does run from the tension in different ways. In fact, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's good will is, or God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern. Did you know this world has patterns? And if you are not attuned to the patterns, if your mind is not being renewed, you will just follow the pattern and not even know you're following the pattern because you are immersed in a pattern. And what is the pattern of the world? Well, I would say the pattern of the world is or, not and. If Jesus says and, the pattern of the world is or, truth or grace. Make your choice. Run to one side or the other side to resolve the tension and the mess. Truth, those that run to truth say to um, others, you're a mess, get your act together. They, they, they stand at a distance and they, they, they distance themselves from the mess of the world and messy situations and then they just speak truth. Or so they, they, they think it is. You're a mess, get your act together. Or, or people run to the other side that they think or they might call the grace side and they say the opposite. They say, you're not a mess. I love you where you are. And to try to resolve the mess and the tension, they just redefine it. 
so that it isn't messy. The world is or one or the other, but Jesus is and. We who follow Him are and. We are those who say, you're a mess, and as we'll find out, we'll also say, and I'm a mess, and I love you where you are. Jesus never ran from messy situations. When other people skirted around Samaria, He went straight through the middle of Samaria to meet the woman at the well. When other people kept their distance from the lepers outside the city walls, He approached. Not only did He approach and engage, He touched. When others thought that you ought not to keep company with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, He went to the parties. In fact, He invited Himself to the parties. The only party I've ever been to is the one I had to invite myself to as well. Remember my high school days. God's mission. So, I, so this is what I want you to know because at the end of the sermon, like if you're looking for all the mess to be resolved, you're probably going to be a little disappointed because God's mission and God's ministry is messy. But it's the tension in grace and truth that gives the gospel and gives God's mission its integrity, holds it together. In fact, there, there's, I don't know, if, throw up that picture there. Have you seen this type of furniture now? It's called tensegrity furniture. Have you seen this? Anybody? It's, you see it on Pinterest, like I don't do Pinterest, but um, don't tell anyone I do Pinterest. But, you know, I see it on YouTube and stuff. It's like a new kind. It looks like it's floating, and you're like, because those are just cables. They're just ropes. What in the world? But what they've done is they've used tension. It actually, the tension gives it its integrity. Instead of tension pulling apart, it's the tension that's pulling together. And so you have tension in the middle and tension on the side, and those competing tensions work together to give it its structural integrity. Tensegrity furniture. Tension, integrity. Tensegrity. I think it's kind of neat. I think I'm going to try to make one. I'll let you know how that goes. Can I borrow a hammer? Does anybody in here own a hammer? Um, the gospel is tensegrity. Okay. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world or, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and, and then you will know God's perfect and pleasing will. And so as we navigate this together this morning, I'm going to give you five questions. You can either write down as we go at the end of the service. They'll be up on the screen if you want to take a picture of them. But I want to leave you with five questions with respect to truth and grace that I want you to ponder and pray about and maybe discuss families, life groups. Uh, my, um, um, my kids are going to be at the teen Bible study on Wednesday and we're going to debrief. We're going to talk about this as teenagers around these questions. Um, so one question will be about truth and the other four about grace. But I want to start with truth because the first thing that we need to know, even before we get to grace, we need to know what is true. And if, and if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we define truth as God. God is truth. That which um, is true of God and His will is true. He is the perfect reference point for all truth. God is true. So we renew our minds continually by, by seeking truth in God, in His Word, in His will, which He has left us, the Bible. Okay, this, we renew our minds here with the help of God's Spirit that leads us into insight. 
So let me just share with you a few verses, words from Jesus. Actually, they're words where Jesus quotes way back at the very beginning of the Bible where we have the account of God's creation of everything. Jesus is going to bring us back to the beginning. So there's this account, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, it says in verse 3 that some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Did you know that there was actually a camp of Jewish religious scholars in Jesus' day that believed that uh, if, if a woman burnt her husband's toast, that was grounds for divorce? I know some of you women, you're going to go home and start burning toast. Uh, so that's where this question is coming from. They had this very loose sort of kind of perspective on that. So Jesus responds, he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's really interesting. In just these few short words of Jesus, he reiterates actually the whole teaching of the Scripture that we will see from beginning to end. A few very important things here. Number one, God made them male and female. Gender is God's design. Gender and sexuality, this, this binary, our bodies... Uh, and our identities are God's design. God made them male and female, he said, first of all. Then we see that God made them male and female for one another in the context of marriage, right? Marriage was God's design for one man and for one woman. And God made sex for marriage, right? And the two, the, the, the man will leave his family and be united to his wife, and then the two will be one flesh, which is the Bible's way of talking about Sex, um, sexual activity, intimacy is designed for God within the covenant relationship, lifelong union of marriage between a man and a woman. Sex was God's design. So, so here you see Jesus restating and affirming what the Bible actually says from its beginning to its end with one voice that God is the designer of us and our bodies, um, designer of marriage, designer of our sexual desires. God defines what is true and false, what is good. And in every instance where homosexuality is described as con in the Scriptures, in every instance it's described in such a way that it is um, at odds with the will of God, His intention for those that He has made. It is sin, okay, which is the Bible's way of saying it falls short of God's design, of His intentions, good intentions for His creation. So Jesus believed that, He taught that, and the whole Scripture speak with one voice on that. And I, I just, we could go to other passages and unpack that further, and in time we probably will, because I'm excited at the beginning of 2024, we're going to take a few months, and we're going to start in Genesis 1-1, and we're going to go through the first handful of chapters of Genesis, and we're going to unpack the beginning in a really more kind of detailed way, and I'm excited about that, because everything is at the beginning. But I want us, I guess, just to, to know 
is, is that the Bible, God's will on that is clear. And to Jesus, that was clear. Because there is a sense that to enter into the mess means that we kind of, are, we kind of need to have vague, uh, vague beliefs, kind of blurry and unclear. That maybe to be spiritual is to one degree kind of shrug your, shrug your shoulders and not really feel like a real strong conviction. Um, I sense that, that some people almost feel like that. That's to be spiritual is not really to be certain. But I think on this, the Bible is unequivocal and unwavering, so we need to be too. And so we as, as leaders and as a church and people, we don't need to avoid this um, or to be apologetic about what God's will and His Word is. Um, we don't need to feel like we hold something pri- privately and personally, but, but speak and act differently out in the world publicly because God is truth and truth is life. As we've talked about, all tr- the truth is the good. Those two are never different. Truth leads to life. And so as we hold to that truth unequivocally, unwaveringly, um, clearly, we don't do so in any sort of unkind or harsh way because that would be at odds with the character and the love and the grace of God as we will see. But we do need to hold to the truth with calmness, clarity, and conviction. We cannot affirm what God does not affirm. That which is contrary to what He says is good, is for our best. We cannot say or do anything that communicates untruth. And so that first question, if you want to throw that up there, Christian, is this. Am I affirming something that is contrary to God's word? Because you will, if you haven't already, and I think many of you have, you will find yourself in situations in your workplace, in your social circle, in your family, in your school. You will find yourself in position, facing pressures, and maybe even facing the cost to, uh, to not affirm that which is contrary to God's word. So that's that first question to ponder. Of course, there are other truths, aren't there? There's not just, um, none of God's truths are at odds with one another, but there are other truths, and I might say greater truths, more important truths, that we are all as human beings made in God's image, that we are all worthy of dignity and respect, the truth that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so these next four questions really revolve around um, the four principles of grace that we spoke about last week. If you were here, if you want to throw those up, Christian, on the screen. Um, last week, we, we said this about grace, these four principles. We all need to see our need for grace. We need to, grace seeks to know the other person. Grace always seeks to speak the right truth, not just a truth, but the right truth. And grace involves, requires patience. So what I want to do is take those four principles and kind of come to this, this question, this area, and apply um, these four principles to that. So, so first of all, the first principle of grace, we need to see our need for grace. And when I say our, I mean each one of us personally, because I think um, it is very easy for on this issue to have an us versus them attitude. There's us people, and then there's those people, or different types of people. There's this sin, and then there's that sin. 
there's this problem and then there's that problem, but the Bible does not do that. It will not let us do that. What it tells us is that we are far more alike than we are different. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read a few verses there because this is the biggest chunk of Scripture that actually speaks to um, homosexuality. And if you read it, it sounds very, it's very strong language. And if you've read it, it's probably raised all sorts of questions for you. Let's look at some of it. Romans 1, 21, it says, For although they knew God, they, who's the they? If you read on, you might think that the gay is gay people. But what, what we're going to see is it's not. The they is humanity. It's you, me, and everybody you know. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, everybody has an idolatry problem. Everybody in their sin has turned from God. From, from seeking God's glory to making God the thing that they um, love most and has turned to self and has made idols of different things, made idols of different desires, made for themselves new identities. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. That's talking about heterosexual Sin, sexual sin. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things from the Creator. That, that's, that's heterosexuals um, indulging, seeking to, to satisfy all of their sexual cravings. Who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations with, for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with, um, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So he's saying that we live in a broken world. Sin has, uh, sin is making idolatry of something else other than God. Putting something else before God. Finding greater worth in something else than God. And that takes many different forms. He says, we live in a broken world and we have these disordered desires because of sin. And he's saying, one of those disordered desires is a disordered sexual desire, both heterosexually and homosexually. A desire that doesn't align with God's will and God's intent. And there you might, if we stop there, there you might go, there, see it? There it is. Those people, that sin, that's the big problem we need to be talking about. That's the biggie. But Paul's not doing that, and we can't do that because he never talks about disordered sexual desire apart from other disordered desires that are the result of sin, um, uh, sin and, and living in a broken world. Look what he says in verse 28. 
Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, again, the they is us, all of humanity, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they uh, do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. Let that, let's just sit there. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing wrong. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Wherever you find the, the Scriptures referencing to, to sexual and homosexual sin, the disordered desires of that, it's always in a list of a whole bunch of other things that might hit a little bit closer to home for you. Greed. He talks about economic disordered desires, greed, envy, he talks about emotional disordered desires, deceit, anger, social relational disordered desires, a lack of loyalty, disobeying parents. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Christian, if you want to throw up those verses up there, um, Paul says, don't you know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, idolaters nor adulterers. That's a tongue twister. Nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So this disordered desire takes all these different forms. And what we see is the per- there is an orientation problem, but it's not like a heterosexual and a homosexual orientation. That's not the ultimate problem. The problem is self-orientation versus God-orientation. All of us in our sin, we have a, a self-orientation. We make idols of our own desires. And identity is something less than what God has said we are and called us to. We are all broken. We all have a bent. I remember hearing an actress say not long ago, monogamy isn't natural. That's why I'm not monogamous. It's not natural. In other words, I have these desires and they must be there to pursue and monogamy isn't natural. To which I say, I figured that out as soon as I hit puberty. I desired that person and I desired that person and I desired that person. And if you're naive, you get married and you think that all goes away and that doesn't all go away. Right? We all experience the brokenness of sin in our life, disordered desires in all sorts of ways, without exception. We are far more alike than we are different. We all have the same problem. We all have the same need of God's grace without exception. And so he just wants to make really clear here that people aren't elevating one type of situation, one type of sin, one type of person, and excusing themselves. Because look what he says in the very next verse, Romans 12, 2. He says, you therefore, Christian, you want to throw that up there? You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. What he's saying is the actual biggest problem is a spirit of self-righteousness feeling that other people need God's grace and mercy and I don't. Other people have the problems and I don't. He says, all of us, all of us are broken. All of us 
are sinners in need of the mercy of God. And we can only grasp the gospel when we understand that we are the worst sinner we know. So I I just want us us to, to know that, to be clear. Someone who experiences the brokenness of sexual orientation or gender identity is no more in need of God's grace than you and is no further from God's grace than you. It's no, it's no different than, than gossip and greed and envy and deceit and all of these other ways that we experience disordered desires. And that's important because I remember a guy left this church a few years ago and, and he liked the music, he even kind of liked the preaching, he stuck around and, and then when, when he found out what our church actually believes, which is what I just said there, kind of the truth on that issue, he said, oh, I don't believe that. And so, so he left here, and, and he said, Rusty, I used to believe that, but I, I just can't anymore because I had this coworker, and I've, and who's gay, and I've never met a better person in my life. He's a good man. And so he, 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 he had this idea that this homosexual, this type of sin, sexual orientation, gender identity is different. They're a different type of people. And when he discovered they're not a different type of people, it kind of rocked his whole worldview. But the problem was he didn't understand what Paul is saying here is, It's not a different sort of person, and it's not a different type of sin. It's not a different type of mess. We all share it, okay? So so the question is this, question number two, do we single... Christian, if you want to throw that up there, listening to a sermon a second time really has to suck. Do we single out one type of sin and sinner uh, and treat them differently than others? So we have to ask ourselves... Because I, I think maybe we've been guilty of this as individuals and as a church over the years. Do we treat this issue differently? People who identify or struggle with this differently. We need to see our need for grace all the same. The second principle of grace is we need to seek to know the person. Remember what John said in, in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. Right? He came from heaven and He came all the way to us, to you, to our sin and to our mess. And, and, and He didn't just come, but He took on flesh. He experienced all the same temptations, all the good, the bad, and the ugly of the human experience. He took it on because He wanted to understand and He wanted us to know that He understands. His heart is towards us. He cares about us. All of our fears, all of our hurts, all of our experiences, all of our temptations, Jesus came to know and so that we would know that He knows. Grace seeks to understand a person. It seeks to to listen. It asks questions. You see, you can't love people from a distance. You can only love people up close. Truth people, this is what I've noticed, and I can sometimes be a truth person, maybe sometimes more than a grace person. Truth people talk about people, they talk at people, but they don't often talk with people. Have you noticed this? A truth person relies on social media memes and posts to, from a distance, convey truth. But love only happens up close. 
And God is love. And so God came close to us. Jesus came not to belittle, but to befriend. Truth people that have let go of grace belittle, but truth and grace people befriend. Because Jesus was accused by the truth people of his day of being a friend of sinners. That was a slur. That was a pejorative. Jesus was a friend of sinners because he went to the parties and he wanted to go. And he came to Zacchaeus, who's up in the tree, the little tax collector, and he said, I'm going to go to your house today and I'm going to eat with you. I got to get to know you. You seem like an interesting person. What's going through that mind, that heart of yours? I want to get to know you. He always drew near to people. He didn't deliver truth from a distance before he drew near. The relationship was always first. If, if, if he was in Stonewall today, I, I think what Jesus would do is he would seek out broken people. Even people they didn't know, you know people that didn't even know they were broken, but he knew they were broken. He would seek out people of different sexual orientations and gender identities. He wouldn't talk about them. He would talk with them. He would invite them over for supper. And he would go to their house. And he would build a friendship. I really believe that because he came to seek and to save. Jesus isn't just welcoming. Jesus is seeking. And I guess this is what I've been thinking a little bit this last week because you know, we, we will not be an affirming church in the sense like we will, not, we will not affirm things that we just think are not true and then therefore not good. But, but we will strive to be a welcoming church. But then I thought, maybe that's not even enough. Because Jesus didn't just, what is welcoming? It's like, hey, if you knock on my door, I'll let you in. Hey, if you walk into the building, we'll let you, we won't kick you out. But are they going to walk into the building? I don't know, probably not. These people might already have a sense that, of, of what we might believe and what that might mean as far as how they might be received and I'm a pastor and what I, I, I must think when I, when I look at somebody. So this last week I was walking here in town and there was a woman walking hand in hand with another woman, her partner, a lesbian couple. And she, the one woman knows me and I know her. And so as we passed, she said, you know, hand in hand with her partner, Hi, Rusty. Hi. Warm smile. Wave. And, as I, and I knew I was preaching on this. And so as I got past there, I thought, um, could I ever see these people walking through the front doors of New Life Church? Do I want that? What would I do? What would we do? And then I thought, yes, of course. Of course, I would want these two people, even hand in hand, walking through the door of our church, in here to hear and to experience the truth of God, that God is love, that God has grace, that God transforms, that God heals. So I, I guess I was thinking, Jesus wasn't just welcoming, he was seeking which means you take the initiative, you go. So that's my question, third question. Are, are we seeking out relationships? Are we welcoming or are we seeking? 
Have you ever made a point of trying to know? To build a friendship? Because grace, grace gives relationship. And people so desperately need it. Maybe especially people in this community. If you want to throw that graph up there, Christian, I came across this this week and it kind of broke my heart. Um, this is a recent study. Percent of high school students feeling persistently sad or hopeless in 2021. And you can see for everybody, it's for teenagers, it's, they're getting more sad and hopeless. If you know teenagers, you know that already. What I thought was in interesting was the breakdown. Way at the top, 75.7%. Um, LGBT students, 75% feeling persistently sad or hopeless. Why? Well, it, it, it might be how the way people respond to them because of their identities or choices, possibly. It, it might be that, that some of those identities are actually just a way to try to find some peace or some, some a, a, a band-aid to some deeper problem, some deeper hurt. I think that's true, too. Which is why I think as a church, we, we have to really care for people who struggle, but at the same time, we have to use our voice clearly and passionately to come to speak against systems and ideologies that sow confusion and exploit suffering. And that is happening. And this becomes just kind of a Band-Aid. And, and, when, and when that Band-Aid just doesn't work, they're still, still left with you know, the real issues, the real hurt. Desperately sad and lonely, looking for community and care. Is that something Jesus people can give? You can't do that from a distance. You can only do that up close. Are we seeking, um, I guess coming back to that third question, are we seeking out relationships? That third principle, speak the right truth. There are all sorts of certain truths that we could offer to people. We could point out people's specific sins and errors, but I'm not sure that that's really the way to start. Christianity isn't fundamentally uh, about something it's against, it's about something it's for. It's for the gospel the transforming love of God displayed through Jesus on the cross who came to bear our sin, to forgive sinners, to make us new, to give us hope and eternal life. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, Jesus says in John 3, but he came to save the world. He didn't come to be like, guys, you weren't listening to the rules. You're doing a bad job. Here is what you're supposed to do. He didn't come... Jesus didn't come so that God could shout more loudly what the rules were and the moral laws. He came because we were too broken to fix ourselves. He came to save and to heal through his own offering of himself to give us a new identity 
you know, our identity is not man, woman. Ultimately, that's what it says in Galatians, right? In Christ, there is no longer any slave or free man or woman, um, Gentile or Jew. Some people, they, they take to the center of there being a certain identity, whether it's the gender, a sexual orientation, or anything else. And that becomes the most fundamental thing, a part of who they are, and then it has to be protected. But, but God liberates us from that because we find our identity not in any one trait or any, any one desire that we feel. We find our identity in Him, in who He made us to be, and who He says we are, and who we are now as sinners saved by grace. And that's why these Pharisees came to Jesus and they, they tried to stuff Him with a question. They said, hey, in heaven, a woman married seven guys and each one of them died. Like, is she poisoning the coffee? I don't know, she goes through seven guys, they all die. She dies, she goes to heaven, so Jesus, uh, whose wife is she in heaven? Like, there's a stumper for you. The first, the middle, the last, all of them? And Jesus says, you don't get it. In heaven, there is no giving or taking in marriage. You realize in heaven, all, like all of that sexual, all those, all those identities that are, that are here, they, they, they fall away. Our identity will be found in Jesus Christ, who we are in relation to God for all eternity. So let us not bring to the center of our being that which does not sustain us. That which is not the real us for all eternity. The gospel is the power to change. We need to point people not to any, any statements of moral law, first, because that doesn't help. And there's no change in that. It's the gospel that changes us. When we recognize that we are a sinner and we repent of ourselves and, and we have a reorientation from self to God, we repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. His promise is that by His Spirit, He begins the work of change in us, changing attitudes and behaviors, and desires, and maybe some of those things never fully get resolved in this life. We still wrestle with some of those things, with some of those temptations, and some of those desires, but by the gospel, God, by His grace, He works in us, and He empowers us to walk in His way, to experience a more abundant life. So the gospel is not change and then come to Jesus. It's come to Jesus and you will change. So let's not put the cart before the horse. Every person you know that, that uh, struggles with a sexual orientation or gender identity, their fundamental problem is not changing or following some aspect of that. It is believing upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So this is the fourth question. Are you pointing people to the gospel first? Because in relationship, that's what we're called to do in the way we talk, in the way we live. It's all about helping people encounter the gospel of Jesus. So is our propensity to point people to law or to the gospel? The law will never change people. The gospel will. The right truth to speak is the gospel truth. Lastly, the fourth point Grace is patient. We can be impatient people, can't we? We can say, why don't you come to church? You've been here three weeks. Uh, shouldn't you be different by now? 
you invited Jesus into your heart and you were baptized last year, shouldn't you have this all figured out by now? We can be impatient. We can put a time frame on how quickly people should change. But this is what we need to know. Freedom from the penalty of sin happens in the moment that we confess our sins and profess our faith in Jesus Christ. That happens in a moment. Freedom from the penalty of sin. But freedom from the power of sin, that takes a lifetime. So Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive the brother who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. You do the math. What is that? Anyone? Seventy times seven. 490. 490. Thank you. I knew it. I just didn't want to say it. So what is Jesus saying? No, not seven. Come on, be more gracious. 490. Was he saying 491? It's like you're out of luck. Okay, there was 490 stumbles, 490 sins, 491. You ran out of grace, buddy. No, what is Jesus saying? He's like, Peter, you don't get it. There is no end. There is no end of grace. Jesus um, is described by John in John 1 that he gave us grace in place of grace already given, or grace upon grace upon grace. He is an unending well of grace. Anyone who comes to him needing grace, repenting of their sin, receives grace. Whether it's, whether it's for the first time, or the 182nd time, or the 981st time. If we repent of our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanses Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God isn't run out of grace. Aren't you glad God is a patient God? Anyone? Any amens? Are you glad that God is patient? There, there's one real sinner up there that needs a lot of grace. Audrey, you're such a sinner. You just need so much. <clears throat> Peter says in 2 Peter, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to life. God is patient with you. He does not want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance, to come to life. God is patient with you. So this last question, are you willing to stick it out for the long haul? Are you willing to bear with people's mess to bear with their stumbles, to bear with their questions for the long journey. Because Jesus' mission is messy. Are we willing, as those who follow him, those who know his grace, are we willing to enter the fray? Or will we be truth-tellers from a distance? Will we be those willing to enter the fray, get our hands dirty, not be deterred by messy people and messy situations in a messy world because God's mission is messy? So may we be those who don't run from the mess but enter into it like our Lord and Savior Jesus who came full of grace and truth. So once we sing this final song, I'll invite the team up. Those five questions are just going to sit on the screen. If you want to sit where you are and you want to ponder them, if you want to take a picture of them, if you want to jot them down to, to bring home, 
um, just to use in your own conversation with God and those around you. Um, they'll be there so that you can do that. Can I invite you to stand and just pray together uh, about all of this, just asking God to show us how we can take what we have heard here and, how, uh, and just uh, bring it to life. I just want, I'll just give you a moment, a few seconds. Why don't you just say to God in your heart, God, show me how I can obey your word. Show me how I can live a life full of grace and truth in relationship with those of other sexual orientations and gender identities. Can we show me? Would you ask him for courage to not avoid the mess, but enter in? Father, we thank you that it is true that you are patient. It is true that you are gracious. You are forgiving. It is true that your heart is bent towards sinners. You are inclined towards us, which is why you sent your son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. We thank you, God, that you have sought us. You have given us knowledge of yourself. You have not hidden your truth of who you are and what your goodwill is for us. But you have given yourself so that we could be free, that we could be new, that we could have life. So Lord, for those of us who know you, I just pray that you would show us how we can leave this place and just go back into the world, a messy world, a sinful world, a broken world, and just bring your truth and your grace to people who need it. In your son's name we pray, amen.